it was like a way for my dad and I to get really close. We used to watch football nonstop every Sunday. And so that kind of got me in. We would sit down at like 11, catch a pregame show, and sit there till like 9 or 10 on Sundays. Hmm. And that just always had like a really strong affinity towards just the community element of sports. The way it brings people together, um, the way it really, it's the most impassioned fan base that converts over borders, over religions, whatever the case is. And uh, that really sparked actually our investment in religion and sports. He's a venture capitalist, a partner at Courtside Ventures and co-founder of NYBC Sports. He also calls himself a disillusioned Ravens fan. Side note, I recorded this podcast intro about 12 hours before the Ravens played their first home game. So Deepin, hope it went well. His fund, Courtside Ventures, is backed by Cleveland Cavs owner Dan Gilbert, George Pines Bruin Sports Capital, and WPP. They've invested in sports properties at the intersection of new tech and media. So essentially, the fund's thesis is hyper-focused, but they've made some big bets on winners. And some of these include what I consider the fastest-growing sports reporting platform in the world, The Athletic, Drone Race League, Twitch's competitor called Beam, and live sports VR platform Live Like. Deepin was also just voted to SBJ's 40 Under 40, and on the podcast, we talk about the predictions Courtside and Deepin are making in sports, media distribution, and tech. We also identify trends in each of those sectors, and during my favorite part of the pod, we talk about the key tenets of being a successful VC, meaning what are the differentiators from venture to private equity to angels and other lines of credit or debt. Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. This is a show where I delve into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, entertainers, and now investor. I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Here is Deepin. Deepin, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, awesome, man. Glad to be on. We have your daughter Prem with us in the room, New York City office. It was, uh, well, first of all, this is my second guest to bring their daughter along, Kelvin Beecham. It was fun. He brought his daughter in the studio. Beach. You're, you're a family man. I am a recent family man. Yeah, we had her first uh, three and a half months ago, and so yeah. sulking in all the, uh, all the lack of sleep. Yeah, and we... Uh, I, I was able to luckily grab you in between a trip from LA. You're going to London tonight. So you travel all the time. I've, I've uh, known you for probably a couple years now. It's part of the life of a venture capitalist, which we're going to unpack on this podcast. Uh, but I, I, I do want to start there. So partner here at Courtside Ventures. And many people have elevated the occupation of venture capitalists, especially in the modern workplace, as something that's revered, uh, fantasized around. Uh, even Rich Antonello on my latest podcast said that he thinks VCs are going to be on the next episode of Dancing with the Stars, our next series. Um, so for you, having been a builder, having worked in finance, traveled the world, what were a few things or what are a few things more specifically that attract you to this position? So I think first and foremost, it's really hard to kind of find your way into venture capital. There are a limited number of roles that are there. I think what brought me into it was not necessarily venture capital experience, but more around just an interest in sports and media. And it's a it's very sexy to say you're VC. There's a lot of cool stuff that comes with it, I'm sure. And you know, people talk about investing in Uber and a lot of others. Yeah. The reality is it 
it's a grind just like any other business, but by no means complaining at all. Yeah. I think nowhere even near the challenges that a founder faces in building a business. But at the end of the day, we invest other people's money as well. Yeah. And so we have a fiduciary responsibility to other folks to ensure that we're making decisions that are in their best interest and what they gave us capital for. Yeah. And so that requires us being on the road nonstop to find the best companies across our main verticals, whether that's in Europe or it's in LA, South Carolina, Detroit, wherever it is, because of the vertical nature of our fund and not being a generalist, we have to go wherever the best entrepreneurs are. Similar to targeting on Facebook or Google, they say the more specific you get, the higher the cost, but uh, you know, to, to acquire a, a, a click or a download or a view, uh, but the more sticky that, that targeted customer can be. The way that I'm kind of thinking through courtside as your, as your thesis is very specific to the intersection of sport, technology, media. When you're this specific in sports investing, do you look at that many deals to find the right one too? Or, or is there some type of filter that you have in place for yourself and Vasu to, to make decisions? Yeah, it, it's still a game of numbers. I think ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, venture capital is very much pattern recognition and learning from what has worked in the past, um, which kind of dictates what we believe will work in the future. So we see roughly 50 investment opportunities a week. And the that spans, you know, Global also spans all the different verticals. A lot of companies right off the bat aren't a fit for us. But for us, it's a matter of being a vertically focused fund. The challenge that comes out is one, your market opportunity is smaller. But two, there's really no excuse if you don't invest in the best companies in your verticals. Yep. Because that's what we're tasked with doing. And, you know, there is a trend that we're seeing. Uh, First of all, I don't think I would make a very good generalist VC. I think it requires a certain level of focus across a lot of different areas. Uh, being someone who's quite focused on these four areas, like the sports media, fitness, esports, gaming world, um, I find it personally far more interesting. And I think there's just a lot more, I have the ability to kind of dive in and become an expert around something, which I think is just much more in my DNA and wheelhouse. Warren Buffett famously says he reads 500 pages a day. He said that's the most important part of his routine is to constantly educate himself what the market is reporting so he can be predictive on the trends. Taking in, taking in all this deal flow, looking at 50 different opportunities, all the research that goes in, assuming they pass your first and second you know, levels of, of filters, which I want to, I want to hear about, but first, like, how do you educate yourself so that you're making the right decisions? I think we're fortunate in the folks we have involved in the fund from the LP side, advisor side, where we can get access and built relationships with the people that are really driving a lot of the trends. So from media companies, sports leagues, um, other early stage companies, both domestic and global, having those conversations is a very large part of what shapes our understanding. And so to give you an example, a lot of the television rights deals are up in 2022, 2023. Yep. 
So understanding what that means for a large broadcaster media company in terms of what types of technology they're looking for, what innovation they'd want to integrate is vitally important for us. Yeah. And that helps drive what we're going to invest in on the early stage side, knowing that those customers at the end of the day may potentially not only be an acquirer, but also pay for a product. Yeah, that's really interesting because when you talk about sports properties traditionally, and we think for the future too, bucket number one for revenue is always media and your broadcast. And has been for a long time. There's a lot of disruption yep. that I want to get your viewpoint on. Uh, but when you talk about sports rights currently, $4.5 billion, close to $5 billion a year to the NFL, 2.6 to both billion to the NBA and the EPL, the MLS and the NHL sit around the range of 200 to 600 million. I think NHL is slightly higher than MLS per year. And then the NCAAs uh, fall in between that range of, of five to $600 million, depends on basketball or football. And those rights are carved up between the conferences as well. So a, a ton of cash, this is on an annual basis. And for the big three sports, they can strike non-exclusive deals. So they're getting that they're able to get that amount of in, of dollars in billions uh, to spread across their ownership groups. The interesting thing, though, is that while we're seeing some consolidation, Turner, AT&T, Disney, Fox, we're living in a really fragmented world. The Cubs just announced their OTT platform. No one's really sure what's going to happen to regional sports networks, call them RSNs. Uh, so, so when you think about media and the opportunity there and that largest revenue bucket for properties, how can, how do you distill all of what I said down to advice to a to a uh, to a founder or a sports league? Yeah, look, I think at the end of the day, sports and this is nothing new, but sports is one of the last forms of live, right? That is makes it so attractive, so lucrative when you look at the deals that are being carved out even today. Um, you have new entrants in the market. You have Amazon, YouTube. You have a lot of others mm -hmm. um, that are starting to enter in. You have Fubo TV on the pure virtual MVPD side. And so th the challenge that we face between all of the companies that are in market is how do you, if, if you come in and you're starting a company and you assume that the NFL is just going to be on your platform, it's probably very wishful thinking. Yeah. The beauty and around expensive that, thinking. And, and very expensive <laughs> thinking. But the beauty of it is there are also a lot of new sports, a lot of new forms of sports, right, which I think provide a very compelling opportunity. Uh, we're investors in the Drone Racing League, uh, which has done a phenomenal job, and they kind of own the sport of drone racing. And they, right out of the gates, were able to carve out this deal with ESPN. Yep. And that was a you know watershed deal, I think, for a lot of new sports that were coming into market knowing that all right espn is now taking this serious for the fact that the audiences are there and interested yep and you know similar to what you're what you see on soccer side lacrosse side yep. how do you create something that is more attractive to the large major media companies given who their audience is going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road yep. versus today. Yep. And I think that's, you know, the whole notion when people are like, oh, you know, NFL is going to go away. I, I don't buy that. Yeah. At the end of the day, the NFL, I think, is still a beast of a business from a media side. 
CTE, all that obviously factoring in can be a big impact, but NFL's not going away, but I do think that there's a lot more opportunity for folks like TBT yep. or the three-on-three, three, which is now an Olympic sport. Yep. Right? So we're, we're constantly thinking from that standpoint, what, what do kids, young kids care about? They, to get them to sit and watch a football game or baseball game for four hours, not happening. Yeah. I remember you and I sitting down in this office where I was telling you my experience around starting the Paul Rabel experience, which was an instruction-based OTT. So I created 250-plus instructional videos, put it behind a paywall. This was at the time where OTT was new, and everyone was really bullish and spending on it. We thought that customer acquisition would come fairly easy because the price point's so low, and you can get access to content. You mentioned Amazon, YouTube, Netflix is in there, Facebook. They create content at a level of ubiquity that's free to access or part of an Amazon's case prime membership and such. So we found out pretty quickly that, and I did personally, that customer acquisition was really hard. I looked at it as a one-to-one of, okay, camp instructions in the range of three to 500 bucks for a week. I'm going to give a user access to this on a daily basis year round for six bucks, you know. I'm going to get 50,000 paid. (laughs) And then we were talking about Fubo at the time and, and uh, you know, their surge in subscribers. But what we're seeing now as, as it's become far more difficult to acquire a customer, even at a low price point, I mentioned Netflix and Amazon as, as kind of those lead ins. You can even look at the WWE network that, has over uh, a million paid subs. Yeah, I and think it was 1.8 that last they announced. Crazy. 1.8. I know they get a surge around SummerSlam and WrestleMania, but you know, network television, how important is that going to be over the next five to 10 years? Yeah. So linear is, is still the holy grail. I mean, at the end of the day, what's really fascinating is you saw Amazon do, what, 20 exclusive games for epl um they also have exclusive european or international rights for the u.s open yep and i think once you start having exclusivity you're going to start not forcing but you're going to start creating new audiences of people that are watching that content yeah you're going to get people i mean I, i believe the average u.s number is like five four or five subscription services wow. that uh household pays for um for media and entertainment that number is probably not sustainable in my mind i think if you have five there's probably a pretty tremendous amount of overlap Mm -hmm. that exists but the number you know two three years ago everyone said oh man linear screwed cord cutting going through the roof like cable companies are done cable companies aren't anywhere close to done comcast is getting bigger obviously they play heavy on the wi-fi and kind of connectivity side but the numbers we see right now is cord cutting's happening, but at a slower pace yeah. than we thought. So a lot of people who have Netflix also have cable. And we're not talking younger generations. Younger generations, certainly, it's very, very digital first. But let's not forget that a very large population of, this U- of the U.S. is still focused on watching Sunday's football on TV. Yeah. And that's not going away. And I think until we have a very very different kind of form factor, different user experience, which is going to take years in my mind. I think it'll be a challenge. I think we're looking not at the next renewal cycle. I think the prices continue to go up on the linear side. I'd say maybe 10 years down the road, though, 
we could start seeing uh, somewhat of a depression in prices going, I don't know about down, yeah. but probably not growing nearly as fast as they have been thus far. Yeah, I, I like that as kind of a, a check down to where people thought television, television was going to go three years ago, similar to a, a core investment of your fund here being the athletic and how we've seen that business continue to grow and disrupt. I mentioned the athletic because with the surge of Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all the access to news via mobile in very short form, we were seeing, even at the level of the New York Times, journalism getting slashed. The Athletic said, hey, we still believe in real sports journalism that's hyper-focused in specific markets, that's delivering it to our users without ads or disruption, and we think that's gonna be there. A lot of people said, no, why would you do that? The market's moving away from it. Uh, Sports news is ubiquitous. And why would they spend to get long-form written pieces? Uh, and so you, you found that early on, right out of Y Combinator, and said, I believe in this. And that would be an example of that check down to television. You know, what excited you about The Athletic? Yeah, look, I think the founders are, are fantastic. You know, Alex and Adam, they're great guys, smart guys. They came more from a, they knew subscription really well. From Strava. From Strava, exactly. And so uh, weren't the most hardcore, hadn't spent 30, 40 years in the media or sports industries, but they understood subscription and they understood that the most important part of what they were building was quality journalism and really phenomenal writers. And what may appeal to me as a Baltimore Ravens fan in my local market may not appeal to you. Yeah. Right, And that's the thing that I think a lot of people forgot, which was there's more than just national coverage. We all have such a strong affinity to where we're from and the teams we love that if you can provide something more than what I'm currently getting or you can provide on a more consistent basis from the writers who I know and I love and I follow religiously anyways, I'm going to pay. And I think they've proven that out really well. Um, they've been fortunate where a lot of the really top writers have, have joined them. And I think it's a testament to the platform that they've built, um, which is it's appealing for people to join from kind of traditional newspapers, media companies, um, because they're, they're building something really special. If you're anything like me, your workout is one of the most revitalizing parts of your day. Here are some of the keys to a great workout, being hydrated, having a healthy diet, great form, and the quality of your sleep. Do you know a third of Americans aren't getting good sleep? But Molecule sleep products are here to change that. Molecule was air-engineered to create the sleekest and coolest mattress in the world. Its proprietary extreme open cell foam technology works to achieve up to three times the airflow of its nearest competitor. Molecule also has the coolest bed sheets out there, Their unique blend of cotton and tensile offers unmatched softness and durability for the ultimate comfort and cooling experience. They help you bring your A-game, not just during those workouts that we talked about, but during the deep sleep of your nights. Ask Super Bowl winning quarterback Russell Wilson, Olympic gold medalist Nastia Lukin, and premier American distant runners Ryan and Sarah Hall about how they're getting the best sleep of their lives, all thanks to Molecule. Now, For Suiting Up podcast listeners, you can try Molecule mattresses risk-free for 100 nights and Molecule sheets for 30 nights. And if you aren't getting the coolest sleep of your life, they will take it back with no questions asked. 
Get $250 off any mattress or $50 off any sheet set by going to onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up. That's onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up. Molecule, optimal sleep for ultimate performance. So you think about the economics of a business that is going to front load expenses to bring on talent. How did you think about, I mean, obviously, I guess you would, you would have to say, well, we need a lot of subscriptions, but you know, were, were there any other things that you looked at in this model or, or was it a bet on, on true longstanding journalistic form? Yeah, look, I think it was a bet on a few things. One, pure bet on the team. Because they're expensive, the journalists. T- totally. Top and, talent. And, and they're expensive, but they are, their loyal following can't be replicated. Hmm. Right? The following that they have is, in a sense, marketing. And so, you know, certainly you mentioned ESPN slashing jobs. I think it was a confluence of a couple of things, right? There are folks that are slashing jobs. Writers weren't getting paid mm-hmm. as much at a lot of the larger places. Um, also, just the business model of traditional media companies, local media companies was, was getting more and more challenging. Yep. And, you know, for us, it was... How do we create something that is obviously, there's, like you said, there's cost front-loaded, but knowing that we're being very methodical in the growth, where we weren't going into 30 cities right in the first six months. Yep. Start city by city to understand what dynamics you know, take place in that city, who are kind of the best writers. Now a lot of that has been, you know, there's a team that works with writers as they're launching new cities. And so... It, it hasn't changed that much, truthfully, in their DNA in which they go and they approach writers. But what has really kind of proven that I think we were hoping would be proven out, and I think Alex and Adam had always told us, was the fact that if they can provide a home for really quality journalism and sports, they will have an opportunity to get the best talent. Yeah, And it's really a function of they have a guy named Paul Fichtenbaum who used to be uh, editor-in-chief at SI and bringing him on board as a sense of credibility as they're going after some of these really marquee writers whether it's local or national uh, it's a game changer yep so I know the folks uh, and I know you do over at the Players Tribune and mm-hmm. they're a- an example of by the way I love the content they put out but jumping really quickly and and scaling that business across long form written to video to live to other partnerships they're building and they've put together a great talent roster to to execute on that but what you're what you're talking about with the athletic is really interesting it presents a bit of a conundrum where you have this really patient methodical approach market to market you're raising vc money uh, so you really have to have a great relationship between your founders and your investors to to say like hey this is the right approach because uh, you're only raising venture money if you believe in the scalability of the property. Yeah, and look, every every step of the way, I can tell you, it's it's been Alex and Adam who have always outperformed kind of what they said they were going to do, uh, which is an absolute testament to them. It's always challenges, right, as you're growing any media company. Uh, but I think for what they were doing, not being ad-supported, purely ad-supported or ad-supported at all, 
enabled them to grow in a more methodical way to your point mm. than having to wait for the ad dollars to come in once you gain scale. Yeah. Right. With us, we can generate revenue as we're developing scale versus first getting scale and then developing the revenue. Yeah. And not to say some advertising models don't work extremely well. I think what Players Tribune is doing is great. Right. And they've been able to prove that, you know, again, quality content wins. Yeah. Whether whoever's writing, whether it's someone who is uh, professional in a, you know, writing capacity and a journalist or an athlete, professional writing or, you know, quality content and however it's done is really powerful. Yeah. This is a challenge that Facebook is, is taking on right now. You can't have scale and force good content. You can take good content and get scale. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Something that, that I, I just draw on a, a connection to, and uh, I've heard this for a long time from different VCs, that one of their most uh, relied upon traits is their former lives as operators and entrepreneurs, which you were. Uh, there's a connection between the athletic that I just made and uh, and one of your businesses, Fanmore, where you rely on that specific geo affinity, and you built a business that you learned a lot from. You've said as an operating entrepreneur that tried to connect sports through technology, uh, specifically college sports, with their alumni base through different means of of getting and helping them navigate to, to access television screens where they could watch or support uh, initiatives at their universities. When, when you were an operator, and specifically with FAMOR, what were some of the things that you think you did well and things that you, you've learned from that have helped you as an investor? Yeah, look, I, I wish I was a, a quarter of the entrepreneur that Alex and Adam are uh, <laughs> over there. Their execution abilities are just phenomenal. Um, when we started Fanmore, the goal was, to what you said, was to build kind of almost a CRM platform or connectivity platform between the universities or even pro teams over time and their fan bases. And the logic behind having like a fan base and a relationship with your fan base is so that for colleges, they can generate revenue over time. Yeah. And... The alumni base is probably the most powerful uh, of all kind of fan bases that you can have. But the challenge is not so much for us in getting alumni on board. It was more that colleges just don't pay a lot of money. Yeah. Um, the, the budgets just aren't there. Yeah. Really. And, you know, we were very naive in our process uh, when we went into it. That The big, biggest learning I ever had kind of going through that was you gotta figure out if your customer's willing to pay for your product yeah. at the end of the day before you get into it. You don't actually need the revenue, but you need to figure out whether there is a really strong willingness to pay hmm. if you build what you say you're gonna build. Mm -hmm. And so that that's a, you know, being more nimble and on that front I think is incredibly valuable, which is why we always you know, would prefer having a product-oriented team or someone who's on the team who can help iterate, build product, um, you know, in-house versus having to do kind of external. Yeah. We're also open, right, to if there's an external development team initially, but there's nothing that replaces having someone in-house who can help you iterate on, you know, 
on a dime and that way you at least can work towards figuring out exactly what someone's willing to pay for. 100%. Mike and I often talk about how as entrepreneurs, um, we're in this place and you're in a position to potentially raise capital and have investors because they believe that you can execute. You're the ones that are going to roll your sleeves up and go get this job done. You're going to test the marketplace. You're going to, to develop the code. You're going to interact with your customer. If you're an entrepreneur that raises capital and then outsources that business, like what are the investors investing in? And so, you know, we often say as entrepreneurs that we earn this equity because we're the ones operating and we're also the ones most capable of operating. And that's why we've been able to raise capital because we have people that believe in us to do so. So totally. And look, we've invested in both, right? We've invested in a founder who a few founders, one in particular, I can think of who is just hands down the best sales CEO we've ever come across. He was able to build something where he was doing, you know, seven figures in recurring revenue without truthfully ever having spent more than, you know, couple tens of thousands of dollars on technology and it was outsourced. And, you know, he was just, he focused on his core competency, which was to go sell, execute on that vision Mm -hmm based on the product he had, which was remarkable. And that's actually really what attracted us to him. Yeah. Which is the fact that you knew that if you gave him a product, a good product, he could sell the hell out of it. Yeah. And he could deliver on it. And so that's really, it, it works both ways. Uh, we've also backed really amazing product teams where the product didn't necessarily work. And even just because a product doesn't work doesn't mean that they necessarily messed up to some degree. A lot of times... I mean, we're, we're in the game of venture capital, which is if you're batting 300, you're an all-star. You're a Hall of Famer. Yeah. And so our plan is to back good people, whether that means you're very, very product-oriented or your core competencies in sales. We want to back the best people who we feel as though are going to be able to execute on their vision. If it's not that first vision, certainly something else that they see as a problem in yep. the market. This week's sponsor is Away Travel. They're the perfect luggage company with a simple approach. They create special objects that are designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you and I travel today. Listen, I'm actually sitting right here with Deepin, and he's got a flight to catch shortly. I can't speak for him, but I travel almost exclusively with my Away gear. It's made for seamless transportation. It's comfortable and gets me through the airport fast. Away's carry-on luggage is made with premium polycarbonate materials, It's lightweight, bends, but never breaks. The interior compression system makes packing super easy. It's TSA approved, which is a grossly underrated feature. From my perspective, I carry on all of my luggage. It has a must-have 360-degree spinning wheel system and has a charging port for my phone or even my podcast unit. With a lifetime warranty and because Away is such a terrific sponsor of Suiting Up Podcast, we're offering our listeners $20 off a suitcase. And I recommend you get started with that today. So head to awaytravel.com forward slash suiting up and use promo code suiting up during checkout. That's it. Awaytravel.com forward slash suiting up with promo code suiting up and get your premium travel luggage today.
All right, so let's let's talk about a little bit of your upbringing and and how you got into sports. And I want to ask a question around passion. Your your daughter's wearing uh, a Ravens bib. I know you grew up a uh, a Ravens Caps Wizards fan. Went to College Park. I've always said it. I won't hold that against you. <laughs> uh, but you play lacrosse, basketball, football. Um, you know, not, not at College Park, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up. Uh, Die-hard sports fan. Yeah. One of the best days I was, I don't remember how old, in my, like, 11, probably, or 10, when the Ravens said they were coming to Baltimore. Uh, my dad surprised us and got season tickets. Awesome. And still have them to this day. I go back for a bunch of games. But my dad, it was like a way for my dad and I to get really close. We used to watch football nonstop every Sunday. And so that kind of got me in. We would sit down at, like, 11, catch a pregame show, and sit there till like nine or 10 on Sundays. Hmm. And that just always had like a really strong affinity towards just the community element of sports, the way it brings people together, um, the way it really, it's the most impassioned fan base that converts over borders, over religions, whatever the case is. And uh, that really sparked actually our investment in religion and sports, which we're now investors in, which is the Tom vs. Time yeah. uh, documentary. But we, for us, that was, you know, growing up was a really big deal. Yeah. And so when I went to college, I was a bio major, was going to be pre-med, just like every little Indian boy should be. Um, and But I, I loved sports and played, you know, in growing up, played in high school. My genes and dreams didn't align, unfortunately. And so <laughs> there wasn't a, there wasn't much beyond that. Uh, but, you know, when I was at UBS, I remember thinking to myself, I had one of my closest friends was working at a sports league and grew up with her and, you know, started seeing more so that sports is not a, you, you don't just go work in sports because of passion. Quite honestly, a lot of sports leagues, if you look at people who work there, they're not hardcore sports industry veterans, right? A lot of them are media folks, people who understand advertising. And so that's what really sparked my interest, which was up until that point, I believe that in order to work in sports, you were either working in the front office, uh, working as an agent, working as an athlete, or like a, a coach, truthfully, right? There just wasn't that much knowledge around what else is out there. The reality is there's so many industries that touch sports and so many roles within those. And so this is what I always tell younger folks when they're like, how do you get to work in sports? My advice is don't go be a sports major. Don't just focus on sports because you have to do something broader to develop core competency, which you can then bring to the sports industry. Hmm. Sports at the end of the day is a subset of media. Right? We just spent the first 20 minutes here talking about media deals. Yep. And if you don't have media deals, sports industry doesn't exist. If you don't have brands, sports industry doesn't exist. You don't have analytics anymore, you can't be competitive. Yep. And so all these different facets, that's what I kind of realized when I was at UBS. And you know, left UBS, went started Fanmore, and a large part of that was we think there's an opportunity. I'm by no means this experienced entrepreneur, but we got to give it a shot. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, after Fanmore, I was fortunate enough to work at a family office that was heavily involved in sports. Uh, and a lot of that came from Fanmore. 
um, when we were talking to them about potentially investing and then spent time after that at Interplay, which wasn't sports related really at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but during that time, I helped start this group, NYVC Sports, which I know you've been kind enough to join in the past. And that really helped open up my network. Yeah. Um, sports is purely relationship driven. Yeah. You know this. I mean, whether it's folks at leagues, agency side, brand side, people have been who've been in the industry for a long time generally have been at multiple places. And if you're able to hook yourself in with that, um, I think that's really valuable. For me, it was, can I bring all these cool startups that are going on in sports industry to the larger folks and build a relationship that way? But I, I cannot stress it enough. There's no reason to be a pure sports management major, right? Hmm. Like if you want to, I think it's, it's fine to have, but I would also have a functional expertise in, imagine if you're, if you do accounting, you do economics, you do finance, you do engineering or product. Those are all things that can apply to sports. Mm-hmm. And I think we're now going to the world of esports and gaming where it's even more relevant. Yeah. And so I, I'm a big believer in kind of gaining a core competence, gaining expertise in like a functional space. Great. So I want to do a quick 101 segment. We had talked about why I'm, I'm sitting down across the table from a VC is to further clarify your, we'll start with fundraising and assuming the... Yeah, so venture capital in, it, in itself, just quick nutshell, is a riskier asset class, certainly, than most. Uh, you'll see it falls under the bucket of private equity. A lot of times are alternative investments. If you look at endowment funds, you look at uh, charitable organizations. The goal of venture capital is to back really audacious founders and ideas that can change, quite honestly, the way we operate on a day-to-day basis, whether it's more on a personal side, commercial side, professional side. And when venture capital was first created in, call it the 1950s-ish, it was to back innovation. And so everything we look at, we underwrite at at least a, a 10x, right? Knowing that majority of it may not reach that point. A lot of companies may just go under entirely. But knowing that the ones that are winners are going to be very, very large winners from where we invested in them. Now, the problem with that is that the bar is set very high. And when I say bar set very high, I don't mean that the caliber of people is superior if you raise venture capital versus running your own lifestyle business. I think some of the best entrepreneurs, in fact, are not ones that raise venture capital, who go it on, you know, go to alternative means of capital, whether it means reaching revenue to a certain point and then going to raise capital down the road or reaching revenue at a certain point and building a business through cash flows, right? And so for us, it's very clear. And being a vertically focused fund, the thing that differs is we know we're not going to invest in Uber, right? As much as I would love to invest in the next Uber. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we know kind of, not necessarily the limitations, but we know the types of companies we're going after. And so that's why the entry point of where we invest is really important to us. Our fiduciary responsibility to our LPs is that we are going to find companies early and we're going to invest in them to a point where, you know, we, one, they're going to be wildly successful. Two, other investors come in that we know and we respect who can continue to fund them 
as they need to grow. You mentioned Uber, and as much as you know, VCs get thrown around as, hey, I want to be a VC one day, blah, 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 you also hear a lot of entrepreneurs, or whether it's through the press or through the, their, their own voices, say, we're the next Uber of X. Yeah. Um, seeing 50 deals a week, as you had mentioned, what are, what are some things that you would caution founders from doing on a pitch or a presentation? Like, I think the, I'm a big believer in, to your point, if you're a really experienced entrepreneur, focusing on your background is great. But if you're not, kind of showing that initial product market fit is wildly important. We've invested in everything from pre-product um, to an entrepreneur who we really know and res we respect all the way to a company that was generating, you know, millions in revenue. And the reason for that kind of shift or just the massive uh, kind of space between both is the fact that there's no, you know, all-in-one kind of encapsulating solution for venture capital or for raising money. So I always tell people, go in with a very clear and concise just what it is the problem is you're solving and what is your solution and what have you guys built to date. And just like entrepreneurs, partners at, at venture capital funds have reputations that permeate through the marketplace as like, this is a VC that not only I want to invest in my business, but I want to actively work with. Some have entrepreneurs in-house that have uh, specific uh, cases and experience working in that particular vertical. One thing that I want to touch on, though, said one in every five investments you guys make, roughly, you lead. So that's, an, that's something that I, I'd like to discuss in your investment thesis, leading around for a fund means you essentially are building the terms in that term sheet. So what the, if, if it's an equity round, the total investment will likely be the majority of that investment. It's going to be the, the plurality at a minimum of that total round and what the pre or post money valuation is going to be. You set those terms, then the other groups will follow based on, on that term sheet. Um, so could you talk about um, ideally, whether you'd like to lead around, and then if you're following another lead, are there some things that jump out at a deal, like reputation of a firm that's leading, that'll get you in? Yeah, sure. So, first things first, I think one of the hardest things that a company, early stage company, is tasked with is finding the lead, yep. right? A lot of folks, ourselves included in a lot of cases, want to participate in rounds, but either we're not the right fit to lead the round and take the board seat, or in a lot of cases, it's a bandwidth issue for us, hmm. right? We, we don't honestly take a lot of board seats unless it's incredibly strategic and in our wheelhouse. And so what we decide to do is, in those cases, help them find a lead or connect them to leads. Hmm. But it is really, really hard for a company to find the lead because effectively what you're doing is you are asking someone to put a price on what you built and a price at that that other people are gonna to wanna to follow in on. And on top of that, you're gonna to have to take the responsibility of governance. Mm -hmm. And so it's a big commitment for a company to come in and lead a round of a company. And so our goal is when we do lead, we wanna come in and we want a group of co-investors who we know have worked with in the past and respected. We're also happy to work with new funds 
but in a lot of cases, they're familiar faces. Um, similarly, we've you know followed along with four or five funds that have led in a number of our deals. Hmm. Um, and a lot of cases, it's just it's relationship, and they know that we are you know we have some expertise in certain sectors, and so they'll pull us in on that. And in some cases, they don't pull us in. Right. If it's not a fit or they don't think that we're necessarily the best kind of investor to sit alongside them and provide some strategic value, then it's not going to be a fit. And, you know, it's again, ventures are relationship driven, just as the sports industry. And so a large part of our job is building relationship with other investors. And by not leading every round, what we do is we can be a strategic investor which is what we really are at the end of the day. We're institutional, but we provide a certain strategic value. And other players want to co-invest with us because they, they don't see us as a threat in every deal um, that we are going to want to lead or take a deal away from them. Yep. So, and that's really important for us to build a brand at Courtside. Yep. And, and so that's a great point. And, and part of that relationship that founders build with their lead investor or their strategic investors is filling out the rest of the cap table with people that you trust, you have existing relationships with, that have great reputation, that can help you execute and as good founders say, cover their blind spots. Yep. And, and by the way, be there kind of holding the bag if yep. you need more capital, right? Like we're, we're again in a very romanticized world right now, a venture where we're in a 10 year bull market. Mm-hmm. Um, shit's going to hit the fan, man. And even in a really good market, some companies falter or need more capital. Certainly when the market you know, does go down, which it always will because everything's cyclical, lead investors generally, um, at least the really good ones, are there to provide more capital to help a company get from you know, A to B. And so I think that, that's really important a lot of times when we're following a lead. Uh, we want to go with folks we know who have done that in the past. To, to that point... How attractive is it to you to sit with a very realistic and objective founder, um, one that is not just you know flaming with optimism, because there, as you we had talked about a little bit earlier on this pod, there are many businesses that you've invested in that have fully pivoted to a different model, and oftentimes it takes that level of self awareness. How mm-hmm. core of a character attribute is that to you? Um. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we, it is very important to take feedback. I think as a founder for us, it's really important to know that we are not experts in everything, but we feel as though we know our kind of verticals quite well. Um, We're not telling founders we're, you know, that they have to do something, but we'd like to know that if we're making suggestions on stuff that it's at least being considered Mm -hmm. or that they're open to having discussions around it. There's some founders who quite honestly are just more open to it than others. Um, I think you have to earn the respect of an entrepreneur or a founder though, right? A lot of times, especially in this market where there are a lot of venture funds, ourselves included, you have a lot of investors on your cap table. And if you're an entrepreneur, you can't listen to everyone because then you're really just not focused on your business. So I think you have to earn the the respect, the, and forget respect, you have to earn the value of the entrepreneur, them knowing that you can really help move the needle for them and that you have their best interests in mind. And I think if you do that and you still 
are working with a founder who is not willing to take any feedback, that can be very problematic. But in our experience, most times once you get to that stage, um, there's a really good dynamic between you know the investor and the entrepreneurs who are willing to at least listen, make iterations, make changes according to people who have provided them guidance. To the earlier conversation around reputation on the street of shops that you want to work with as an entrepreneur, and then vice versa, entrepreneurs out there, multiple time entrepreneurs that investors want to cut deals with because they know their work ethic and they know how they can think with innovation. That's a two-way street, and, and you got to find the right match there. Yeah, and I, and I think what one thing I'll, I'll add is they're, they're just, every entrepreneur is different, right? And they all have different upbringings. They all have different things that have motivated them to build it. Majority of the time, it's not money, purely money. And so, you know, we have one founder who is just incredibly dedicated and committed. Everyone's dedicated, but he took it to a different level. He was, you know, he has a family and he had his family move in with his parents and he has kids. And then he went, out to, I won't say exactly where, but he went out to the city and he lived on couches for two months Mm -hmm. until he could figure out whether there was a real business here. And he had a responsibility to his family. So his was, I don't want to move you out here. I'm going to put you in a place like where my folks are. You're going to live with my folks. Let me go figure out if what we're doing is real. And to this day, he makes a lot of sacrifices. I I think the notion of, you got to be long your equity. Mm-hmm. Right at the end of the day, if you want a high paying job, you shouldn't be trying to start your own company. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're a first time entrepreneur, you're in it to build something of real value. Yeah. And so I would always caution all entrepreneurs. And, and truthfully, I, I don't know if I, I'm the best case of that either. Right. Like we for Fanmore, we put in all of our own money. Um, we, you know, we lost quite honestly a lot of money on it. But at the same time, you know, if someone came to me at that moment and said, hey, I'll offer you X job paying Y dollars, it probably would have been pretty enticing when things were going well. Hmm. I think the best entrepreneurs are folks who really stick to their guns. Obviously, you need to know when to cut your losses, but who just keep trying and trying and pivoting and iterating to a point where they find something that they feel there's real product market fit behind. Um, So, yeah, that's just kind of a... A point where we've seen a lot of entrepreneurs who the, just the passion and the drive and the willing to sacrifice is so big. So big, especially at the seed stage. If you enjoyed Deep Into My Conversation, please be sure to let us know. You can follow me on Twitter and converse with me. I'm at Paul Rabel. What do you think of this episode? And what startups are out there that you'd like to invest in? Shoot me a note. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with sports angel, investor, and media mogul Gary Vaynerchuk. His episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Also, when you find this podcast, please consider giving us a subscription, a rating, and a, in parentheses, great, close parentheses, review. Thank you. For a shortcut to our show notes, visit suitingupodcast.com. That will earmark everything that Deepin and I discussed. And until next time, have a great week, everyone. Mm-hmm.